Welcome to the Steinberg Show on a Monday afternoon. Pat Steinberg and Peter Klein along with you. And about 24 hours removed from what was, I think, probably safe to say, Mr. Klein, one of the more shocking days that we've probably gone through in terms of sports and in terms of sporting figures. Uh, about 24 hours removed just over that from the shocking death of Kobe Bryant, his daughter, uh, and seven others in a helicopter crash in California. It was it was a shocking Sunday, and probably the most poignant way of kicking off the program on this Monday afternoon. Uh, we'll tell you where we are in just a few minutes. We'll tell you we're here at OPA. We're here with Kids Sport once again for the citywide 50-50, and we will tell you all about OPA and all about how you can come purchase tickets and support an outstanding cause in just a few minutes. But the best way, I think, to kick off the program today, uh, Arash Madani, Sportsnet Arash Madani, did an unbelievable job of putting together uh, this tribute, this look back, and this retrospective of the life and career of one of the greatest of all time, Kobe Bryant. There were such unquestionable, distinct themes attached to the basketball career of Kobe Bryant. The unrelenting competitiveness, the will and want to to win, the unmistakable pursuit to do whatever it would take to lift another championship trophy. Phil Jackson marveled that throughout his coaching career, one player beat him to the gym every morning, Kobe. So of course he bought a helicopter. That would get him to and from the practice facility and to Staples. It would save him so much time, help preserve the body, give him an edge to get better and riding that chopper gave him an extra hour at home. Mamba on the floor, dad at home. Such cruel irony that Brian's last ride was off to another gym, another game, and in a helicopter. A helicopter that crashed, killing he and eight others. The opponent wasn't MJ or LeBron. No, Sunday Kobe and his daughter Gianna were among the group headed to her travel basketball game. The same ride that took him to the grandest heights of the NBA world. The five championships and two MVPs that made him as recognizable a global star as any athlete in North America. Within an hour of the initial news reports, a quiet Sunday turned into a shocking blow to the gut across the sport and entertainment world. An impromptu memorial started and grew and grew even more outside Staples Center. At the Pro Bowl, the players were like zombies, asking anyone hoping it wasn't true. Neymar's goal celebration was muted, just flashing his fingers with a jersey number and a point to the heavens. Outside of the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden was lit in purple and gold. And there was no opening possession for the Raptors nor the Spurs in a building that once viewed number 8 and number 24 as enemy number 1. Those in San Antonio chanted his name and paid tribute to him with an ovation. 24 seconds for number 24. You know, uh, I just don't have a lot to say. I, uh, the news is just devastating to everybody uh, who knew him, known him a long time. Kobe Bean Bryant was almost destined for stardom from the jump. Born in Hoopsmad, Philly, the son of a basketball pro. His father's career took the family to Europe 
and it was there he became fluent in Italian, learned to dribble on the pitch almost as well as he did on the floor. To this day in Milan, Bryant is as connected to soccer as he is basketball. When he retired, it was about the next challenge. It always was for Bryant, wasn't it? So was anybody surprised when he stood on Hollywood's grand stage in 2018, the winner of an Oscar? Yes, Academy Award winner Kobe Bryant, executive producer and writer for animated short, Dear Basketball. It was always about ball with Kobe. The career achievements are for the books. He's in every conversation when you bring up the GOAT. You may not be right when making a case for the kid from Lower Marion High, but you certainly wouldn't be wrong. He's right there with Jordan and LeBron, Bird and Shaq, Kareem and Bill Russell. Think of the scope. Go anywhere in the world and mention Kobe. He's as identifiable as Bolt, Messi, Fed, Serena and Tiger. Bryant has guarded Del Curry and his son Steph. He feuded with Shaq, won with Shaq, feuded with Shaq some more, then won a couple more rings without him. He's got one more to Shaq. two highest-rated Christmas Day games since the Jordan era have featured Kobe Bryant as the lead villain. For years, that's what he was, the shot-happy, arrogant kid who from the beginning wouldn't back down. Not as a rookie in a hopeless fail to Utah. Not in the early 2000s when his demands and selfishness crumbled what could have been an iconic Laker dynasty. Kobe Bryant didn't care about any of that, of what his teammates said about him, certainly not what you or I thought. Few could tolerate his dismissiveness, but no matter, he just got after it harder. His work ethic remained unmatched. USA basketball officials tell the story of legend. Bryant calling strength coaches to get a workout and 300 jump shots in at 4 a.m. in July. It all didn't matter until the crossroads moment. The Boston Demons struck Bryant in 2008. Someone please call 911. Rondo has just picked the pocket of Kobe Bryant. Utter destruction of the Lakers. A 39-point loss in those finals. The biggest margin of victory in a clinching championship game. To the Celtics, no less, on the parquet. A dozen years in, and the light flipped on. The Mamba was born, and Kobe went off. He captained the Americans to gold that summer, told a leprechaun to shove it, then led the Lakers to back-to-back -back NBA titles after the embarrassment at the Garden. Along the way, he became the all-time leading scorer for one of the greatest franchises in sport. This really feels like a dream. I mean, I it doesn't even feel real right now. It's unbelievable. You know what else he did that Jordan didn't? At the twilight of his NBA career, when the issue really exploded in America. It was Bryant, in pregame warm-ups, who had his teammates wear I Can't Breathe t-shirts. It's a justice issue, Kobe later said. When his body gave out, his voice still mattered. The night he clutched on to his first and only Oscar, he told reporters that gold trophy felt better than any championship. And he also told the world this. Well, I don't know if it's possible. I mean, as basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. While that was Kobe Bryant in the latter stages of his life, what followed him for much of it is what happened in Colorado in 2003. He was charged with felony sexual assault and admitted to adultery. 
The case never went to trial after the woman decided not to testify. Charges were dropped. Bryant was in a courtroom right around the time he and his wife Vanessa became parents. The first of four kids. Gianna was the one with Kobe on Sunday. He once said, I totally passed on the basketball gene to her. They were on their way to her game in a helicopter. One of the greatest to ever do it. Suddenly gone at the age of 41. Once again, that's Sportsnet's Arash Madani who put that together as we are underway on the Steinberg Show. Yesterday was surreal. Pat Steinberg and Peter Klein along with you. Surreal. It's, uh, it, was, it was crazy. So I'm, I'm just curious as to how, how you took the news in, Kleiner, because I was getting off the tram from Terminal 1 to Terminal 3 to catch a flight home from Las Vegas yesterday, and that's when I first looked at my phone, and within, like, it was like, now, and there's one of our internal emails that says the it was the first initial TMZ report, and all of a sudden, you're like, Phew. This this is this is as shocking a headline as as I've ever read, and then from that point forward, it was email after email, and immediately you're on Twitter and you're looking and reading. And how did you how did you take the news in? How did it hit you yesterday, my friend? Uh, I was actually getting uh, a rather dirty apartment ready to have company over for the Royal Rumble that night, and just. My, my phone kept buzzing, so I just looked over and saw in a basketball group chat I'm in uh, the, the headline. I was like, oh, someone got duped. There's no way this is actually. And then you go on Twitter, and it's like, oh, wow, this is, this is really happening. Yeah. And it just stopped me cold in my tracks for a while and just kind of going through the motions of a lot of the day. And then I, I was still getting ready, so I missed a lot of the some of the, the inaccuracies that were reported on Twitter and then you see that his daughter was on the, the helicopter as well, and it's just it, it's heartbreaking. And someone who was such a big part of a, a sport that has a, a lot to do with my life uh, to be gone so quickly was uh, it was a lot to take in, and it's still a lot to take in. And don't uh, don't really know the proper way to take it in because regardless of, of what you think, it is absolutely a complicated legacy that he leaves behind. But from a, a sporting standpoint, there's no argument that he was one of the best ever. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's quite, it, it, well, it's certainly the, a, a different discussion, but it's a, it's a tough one regardless. Well, the, the thing that hit me more than anything else is, and, and the thing that I'm having the biggest problem with is, it's not just, it's not just Kobe Bryant who passed away, and that's by far the most famous person. Yeah the most recognizable person that was on a helicopter yesterday that crashed in California. But there was a 13-year-old daughter of, of his, and that leaves behind a wife and three other siblings. And I, I guess what kicks me hardest in the gut is, okay, Kobe's the one that's getting the tributes and the retrospectives because he's one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Mm-hmm. But there were multiple others family multiple other families completely ripped apart i mean you're talking about a father and two daughters that were on this helicopter a mother and a daughter um another basketball coach who was a wife and and a pretty beloved pilot and 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 so you know you're, you're talking about multiple families that are ripped apart and and look death is hard to swallow at any time but boy is it hard to swallow when you're talking about 
for people who never even got to start their own legacies because they were teenagers. They were early teenagers. It's just the whole thing. Yeah, Kobe is Kobe is the most recognizable name on there, and and that one is tough to swallow because these these are supposed to be invincible athletes, and we're not yeah. used to talking about them going so early. Like we're used to to Ted Williams and Gordy Howe, and and you know those ones are sad and we remember but they also lived full lives and mm-hmm. they they lived well into their 70s 80s 90s i mean here's a man who, who dies at 41 and and the fact that he dies with his daughter on the helicopter the fact that two other people die with their children on the helicopter that's that's what made me the sickest to my stomach and, and still does like knowing yeah. that we we were going to be talking about this today you're just like Boy, you're trying to prepare yourself for having to talk about it. And it's like even for me, I don't have kids. I don't but just to think about just to think about those who do have kids and all the people right now that would be like that that's 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 a worse nightmare. And and it's just that's what has been the most difficult thing to wrap your head around is is how many families were completely torn apart with what happened yesterday. Yeah, it's it really is tough to, to get a full grasp on it. And from the because I, I, I just, I can't speak to the other people. as And again, heartbreaking for sure. Um, from, from the Kobe standpoint of things, as Arash mentioned in that, that tremendously well-done tribute, um, the... Yeah, the, really the, well done. The, the helicopter came into play because he wanted to spend more time with his family and wanted to, wanted to be dad along with Black Mamba, as, as he said in one of his interviews. Um, but that he, he retired and wanted to just be dad while doing some of the other stuff and wanted to be the one who was at the, the basketball games. And you could see him with his daughter at NBA games courtside. There, there's a video that, that I tweeted out uh, yesterday of him kind of just like pointing out different things on the court and them talking about it and her mimicking what her dad would do on the court with the different little shoulder shimmy and things like that. And it, it just, it really mm-hmm. humanizes everything. And it, it's just the whole thing is devastating that just in the blink of an eye so many different lives completely altered because of of this it's it's a lot to to wrap your head around and i'm, I'm someone coming coming from 660 there's a lot of things that it's it's wrong to but you you hear it 15 times a day so you kind of get numb to, to certain things but even even if kobe wasn't involved in this this would be one that it's just a lot to wrap your head around and a lot to do yeah with. yeah uh, and, and look, I know there's going to be plenty of, of retrospectives and plenty of tributes to Kobe and talk about his legacy and, and what it means. And I think the way that you put it, it is a complicated legacy because if you're talking about just him and, and his life in a bubble, which I find really hard to do because of all of the loss of life that we're talking about with this, yeah. with this incident. But if you're talking about just one life in a vacuum or one life in a bubble, it, it absolutely is a complicated legacy and one that has always been difficult for me to wrap my head around and for me to reconcile because of, of what Arash mentioned at the end and, and what happened in 2003. There's plenty of more talk for that as we continue along in the program. But that was, uh, I, I thought, the, 
only way to start off the program. The yeah. Steinberg Show is underway. Lots to get to on the program today. Later on this hour, Ryan Pike from FlamesNation.ca. The Flames return from the break tomorrow against the St. Louis Blues. And right now, we are live from Opa Shaughnessy for our citywide Kids Sport 50-50 draw. Where is Opa Shaughnessy? Very easy to find. It's in the Shaughnessy Plaza, 250 Shawville Boulevard, southeast. It is right beside Co-op. And this is uh, one of the uh, easier places to find in the city. You know where Shaughnessy is. You know where Shawville Boulevard is. You know where the co-op is in Shaughnessy. That's where OPA is. We're here for the citywide 50-50, so come on down. Say hi to the folks at Kidsport. Buy your $5.50 ticket or more and get entered into the draw to win potentially up to $50,000. We're trying to raise as much money as possible this month and next month for Kidsport in their 25th anniversary. Have yourself some lunch at OPA. Um, again, I'm quite excited for the uh, the Greek salad and the uh, chicken skewers. I'm quite excited. It's uh, the, the Vegas trip is done, so it is back to eating as uh, close to keto as possible possible and Flush i don't know if you're gonna find a better low carb <laughs> exactly i mean I, I got i got about i got the white castle in i got the sonic in oh. i got so it's like okay um i don't know if you're gonna find healthier options for quote-unquote fast food anywhere in this city than opa if uh, you're trying to stay true to a low carbish diet you're gonna find the perfect uh, trick here with their low carb options at opa plus well, the, the fries here are unbelievable and uh, did you know there's an Opa at the Fashion Show Mall in Las Vegas? I, I learned oh. that. Um, I learned that yesterday, and that was uh, that was kind of like ah, Opa Calgary Company here in Las Vegas. That's pretty cool. Uh, so we are partnering up with Opa and with Kids Sport once again for the citywide 50/50. Come on down, buy your tickets, say hi to Pinder and I. We're here until six o'clock this afternoon, 250 Shawville Boulevard Southeast. Opa of Greece, the power of good food, believes in the power of community. Drop by and enjoy the flavors of Greece at one of their 30. To Calgary locations today. The Flames need more from three players in particular. There is no doubt about that. Plus, why is Buddy Robinson with the team right now? All that and more with Ryan Pike of Flames Nation. He's coming your way next as the Steinberg Show is underway on a Monday afternoon. Sportsnet 960, the fan. Flames are back at it tomorrow. They come back from an extended break with a back-to-back set at home to... Oh, you know, the defending Stanley Cup champions, one of the best teams in the Western Conference, one of the NHL juggernauts. Oh, and then immediately following that home game, they go to Edmonton, and they've got to take on the Oilers in the return match. And for the first time since that game (laughs) earlier this month, we see Matthew Kachuk and Zach Cassian on the same ice surface together. Yes, that's how the Flames come back after the break. As we welcome you back to the Steinberg Show, Pat Steinberg along with you. Time to say hello to our Flames Nation analyst, Ryan Pike, who joins us every Monday at this time on the program. And Mr. Pike, I guess we'll we'll start the program off. The Flames come off the break sitting third in the Pacific Division they are one point back of Vancouver and in a schmozzle of five teams separated by just one point in the Pacific Division right now what's your overall outlook on the Flames your thoughts on where they sit as they begin their stretch drive in their final 32 games tomorrow night against St. Louis well I, I think if we gave uh, the folks in management on, in, uh, on the team a bit of truth serum I think probably to a man, none of them would say they played to their potential. But I think in that sense, it's kind of a positive in, in the sake that, you know, they're, they've played 
okayish hockey and are in a position where they could conceivably win the Pacific Division. They're in a they're in a situation right now where uh, what's the old saying? Like they don't have to be the fastest to make the playoffs. They just have to be faster than the Bear. Uh, as long as they're not the the fifth best team in the Pacific Division, they probably have a pretty decent shot of make the playoffs because the Central Division outside the top three teams is kind of a you know kind of a garbage pile. So if they can just stay ahead of the Chicago's of the world, they're probably in good shape. Yeah, I guess I, I look at it kind of a, a double-edged sword. On the one hand, I say to myself, I mean, yeah, they're right there. They're a point back at the Pacific. I also look at it, they're only two, three points being outside of the playoffs, and I, I, it's not like they go into the break with some real quality victories. They have a win over Toronto where David Riddick was the main, if not sole, reason why, and regulation losses to Ottawa and Montreal. So on the one hand, you're right. They're, they're right there for the Pacific Division crown. On the other hand, I can just, with the way, with what I've seen from them through 50 games, can just as conceivably see them not making the way things have gone to this point. Yeah, like we've we've done the, the seven-game breakdowns at flamesnation.ca since the beginning of the season, and we're, I think, seven or eight segments in. I'm bad at math right now off the top of my head. But, you know, through 49 games, 50 games, you know, the, the most consistent things we can say about the Flames is, well, their goaltending is pretty good, and their penalty killing is pretty good, and they're pretty good at uh, at generating shots. They're not really good at varying shots. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's good that the that the special teams are good and the goaltending is good, but the, they need to get more out of the power play. They need to get more out of, you know, their their high rent players because, you know, outside of uh, some sporadic uh, production from the likes of uh, Matthew Kachuk and Elias Lindholm, they haven't really had the consistency that they need out of those guys. So I think yeah. the like you said, double edged sword because they haven't really gotten what they hope to get out of their key players, and they're still right there with it. So if one or two of the guys get hot, then maybe they're in good shape. Conversely, though, if their goaltending, one or both goaltenders, goes cold, then life becomes a little bit more challenging. Yeah, well, and I've got an article up at Flames Nation right now talking about those. I think there are three guys that you would point to and say core pieces extremely important pieces that have underachieved through the first 50 games of the season one on the back two up front mark giordano johnny gaudreau and sean monahan they they there's no question they need more from those three in particular down the stretch yeah and you know you know you and i've been in this market for a while we both grew up here i I vividly remember back in the day you know the the whole thought process of which line is the top line was well wherever line jerome mcginlow is on is the top line regardless of who else he's with because he's that good and I think, you know, up until probably this season, the top line for the Calgary Flames has been whatever line Johnny Gaudreau's on. And this year, that has definitely not been the case. And to be honest, it hasn't really been close. There's been a pretty big gap between the performance of Kachuk and whoever's playing with him and Gaudreau and whoever's playing with him. And I think if that gap happens to get narrowed a bit by Gaudreau upping his game down the stretch, then I think the Flames might have an easier go of it. But, you know, right now, the, they're, they're a group that has really one really good line, two, if you if you include the, the Lucic, Ryan, and whoever they have with them combo. But, you know, when, when you have, you know, one of your core lines not really producing the way you need it to, it makes life difficult. So if, if Goudreau and Monaghan can shake off whatever funk they were in and get it going, I think it could go a long way towards making the Flames not just a playoff team, but a playoff team with some aspirations. With Ryan Pike from FlamesNation.ca joins us Mondays on the program. So let's let's focus in on Giordano because the offensive drop off from him is hard to wrap your head around. I think that after a Norris Trophy season and what he did last year, there was probably an expectation that there was going to be a drop off. 
However, it's fallen right off a cliff offensively. Any hypothesis as to what we've seen or why we've seen it? I think a lot of the t- problems for uh, for Giordano sort of stems from the guys he plays with because, you know, if, if you're one of those folks that goes to, uh, you know, the underlying numbers, you know, recently, you know, a lot of a lot of ink has been, uh, you know, shed regarding what a stat known as expected goals. And expected goals takes on basically the types of shots, the quality of shots, the location of shots, and situational metrics, and sort of combines them to sort of provide a, an estimate of how many goals a player should score in a given year. Uh, I think one of the challenges right now is, you know, some guys are snake bit. Like, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, Michael Backlund, Michael Backlund, uh, he should have 12 goals. I think he has like five or six, like he's ha- scoring half as much as he should based on his scoring chances. But Monahan is scoring about as much as he should. Goudreau is scoring about as much as he should. Kachuk is scoring about as much as he should. And so, you know, to a man, outside of a handful of guys that are kind of, you know, battling the percentages a bit, the Flames just aren't getting the same quality of scoring chances that they usually do. Uh, I think their expected goals per game this season is 2.67. And, you know, during the last season, it was about 2.9 or 3. So they're scoring, they're generating uh, about a third fewer expected goals a game. And as a result, they're losing a lot of little tight games that normally they would have won by a goal. Right. What of the three of them, of Gaudreau, Monaghan, and Giordano, is there one that you're most confident in that returns to form in the final 32 games of the season? I would probably say uh, Monaghan simply because, you know, he's he is still a center and he's still getting the centerish types of scoring chances sort of right around the slot, right around the, the front of the net. And I think it's just a matter of, you know, getting a little bit more in terms of battling in front of the net. So I think he's still going to the areas he usually does. He's just sort of not getting the sticks on pucks that he normally would have. Uh, conversely, I think the challenge with Goudreau is Goudreau has been very perimeter this year. I mean, if you look at his spray charts in terms of where his scoring chances come from, there's a lot of stuff from the, the far left side of the, of the face-off circle. So, uh, you know, will he in the last 30 games be able to sort of get in between the dots a bit more and get more scoring chances? Well, maybe, but Monaghan's already been in between the dots for most of the season, so that's why I have a bit more confidence in him. Yep, that's fair enough. With Ryan Pike from flamesnation.ca. So, you talked about it right off the hop. What, what in your mind do the Flames need to do? What do they need to ensure that happens for them to be a playoff team come April? I just think they, they just need to find ways to get more from their core guys, and maybe it's just a, something as simple as, you know, when guys are cold sitting them or when guys are cold shuffling up lines to keep things going because, you know, in any given game, they've really usually only had one line really clicking, and I think the challenge is it makes them a very easy team to match up against if you pre-scatter them and you figure, oh, they could chuck Manji Panty lines clicking. Ah, just put your defensive guy against them and you'll be fine. So if they can get one or two more lines going or find a way to potentially upgrade, I mean, you know, you know, you guys have been talking about it for, for weeks, just the, the concept of if the Flames can get a – you know, a, a top six right winger potentially play with with uh, Goudreau and Monaghan. All of a sudden, you don't have Backlund playing out of position on the wing. He can slide back mm-hmm. to center on the third line. All of a sudden, instead of having, you know, like, let's be honest, Derek Ryan's the third line center. He should be a third line center. But if he has to drop down to the fourth line, potentially now you have two third lines and life's a little bit easier. You can maneuver a bit more. And the drop off between your two or three strong lines and your fourth line is a little bit less, which makes it a lot easier to roll lines, which makes it a lot easier to, over the course of 60 minutes or a seven game series, just grind the opposition to a halt. And I think that was something Colorado did 
a really good job with against the Flames last year. And something the Flames, I think, are very cognizant of, of, you know, the type of team and the type of composition they want to have going forward. Any feel on why the Buddy Robinson recall? Uh, let's be honest. Like, he's been good. I mean, he's he's 28. He's, he's no spring chicken, but he's he's a guy they haven't really seen a lot of at the NHL level since uh, he's come under contract. And he's... He's big, he can play, and he can score goals. And for a team that, you know, the, the long-standing line with this team has been the skilled guys aren't particularly big and the big guys aren't particularly skilled, this is a guy who, who's definitely big, and there's some underrated skill there. So, you know, potentially you can throw him on the fourth line and maybe you get a little bit more out of him than you get out of the Zach Ronaldo's of the world. Are, are we expecting him to, like, that's that's the crazy thing is, you know, you've seen Yellison come up, what, three different times and not play? It's uh, Matthew Phillips came up, didn't play, although I know now that he's hurt and isn't going to return this season in the American League. Like, we've seen different guys get the recall and haven't played. I'm, I'm curious if we even get a chance to see Robinson in the Flames lineup. I'd like to, I just don't know if it's going to happen. Yeah, and, and honestly, you know, I think the comparison to Yellison and Phillips is kind of a challenge because with Yellison, you know, he's a guy brand new to North America, and they kind of want to mm-hmm. use the experience as sort of a setting expectation for them. Same with Matty Phillips, where he comes in, you know, you don't want him to be all, you know, wide-eyed and terrified his first time he actually has to play. So getting him a week with the NHL team to sort of get his feet wet and sort of get accustomed to things was pretty good. But Buddy Robinson, like, he, he's 28. He's been in the NHL. He's played NHL games. So I think with him, there's a little bit less wide-eyed wonder, and you, you think think you know a little bit more about what he's going to bring you at the NHL level than you do the other two guys. Yeah. Where does Mark Jankowski fit for you going forward? That's That might be the most interesting of the conversations between now and the end of the season or between now and the trade deadline. You talked about Derek Ryan and potentially having him as a number four center. That would seem to leave Jankowski as the odd man out. Where does he fit for you? I don't know, because I think the the challenge for him is, you know, the things that he did well last season aren't really clicking the same way. I mean, you probably could expect him to be the NHL's league leader in shorthanded points or shorthanded goals or something like that, because, you know, teams pre-scout you now, and, you know, you kind of know what Mark Jankowski is going to bring, but he hasn't really been nearly as dangerous on a per-game level or a per-shift level than we saw last year. So for whatever reason, he took a step back, and you know his numbers aren't his underlying numbers aren't great, his counting stats aren't great, and when you're not really getting anything out of your fourth-line center, whether it's points, whether it's quality minutes, whether it's good PK time, and whether it's winning face-offs, it makes it challenging to be spending you know the kind of money they're spending on him to have him be a really expensive extra body. All right, well, the most important thing now is, I know they've got a game against St. Louis tomorrow, but is anybody really going to, it's a tough game, but on the inside the locker room, yes, they have to be focused on the Blues tomorrow. But let's just get to Wednesday already for that Flames Oilers game. That's what I, like, oh, give, give me to Wednesday, Saturday. Let's go here. Well, and I, and I think, honestly, from a fan perspective, this is the type of week where you figure out kind of what the Flames have because, you know, they've had time off. You know, everyone's had time off to recover, go to Mexico, go on a cruise, whatever they did with their time off. But now, you know, you have three games in, what, six days, and they're playing the Stanley Cup champions and Edmonton twice. We're going to learn a ton about the, the constitution and the, yeah. the makeup of this team over the next three games. Let's just get us there already. Good stuff, man. We'll talk to you next Monday. Appreciate it, Mr. Pike. Well, see you, bud. That's Ryan Pike, FlamesNation.ca, Mondays on the Steinberg Show. He joins us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar Guest Hotline. The same secret recipe since 1975 for pickup or delivery. Call 403-248-3344 and find them at 6060 Memorial Drive, Northeast. This is the Steinberg Show from OPA Shaughnessy on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. (laughs) 
Happy Monday. We are live from Opa Shaughnessy. Over the weekend, the Calgary Roughnecks finally with another home game, but a month between home games for the Calgary Roughnecks, who is the uh, East Coast house party, and they end up falling by a 15-12 score to the brand-new Halifax Thunderbirds. Welcome back to the Steinberg Show. It is time for your Monday Roughnecks report with the one and only Riley Pollock. It was another tough night for the Roughnecks on Saturday. They lost 15-12 to the now 6-0 Halifax Thunderbirds in front of over 15,000 fans at the Dome on East Coast Kitchen Party Night. It was a great start for Calgary. Tyler Pace scored twice in the first two and a half minutes of the first quarter, and Curtis Superman Dixon scored to make it 3-0. After one quarter of play, the Roughnecks held on to a 4-1 lead. It was more of the same for Calgary in the second quarter. Zach Haywire scored his first home goal as a roughneck, and Curtis Dixon finished off a first-half hat trick to send the Riggers into the break up 6-3. After the half, the Thunderbirds came out on fire. They outscored the Roughnecks 9-2 in the third, scoring seven in a row at one point, and took a 12-8 lead into the final frame. Tyler Pace finished off a four-goal night late, but it wasn't enough as the Thunderbirds stayed undefeated and the Roughnecks fell to 2-4 on the season and and 0-3 at the Roughhouse. Coach Kurt Malowski gave his thoughts following the game. They went on a four-goal run and a seven-goal run, and and when that happens, that's catastrophic for us. It's not good, and, you know, we're... We built a good lead, and we know that you know we've watched the film on them. That they uh, they get down, but then they stay with it, and they usually go, they, they just trickle back around and they come back up again. And uh, you know, for us, we uh, got a couple early early in the second half, and then we got back. We got up by two, and then we had some bad sorting in transition, and uh, you know they got some easy looks at the net. And you know, if it wasn't for Delps holding us, then it could have got real ugly, and we were able to kind of reel her back a little bit. But you know, then you're extending your neck a little bit, uh, and then when that happens, you know they get one going the other way, and. I like to compete. I like the guys didn't quit. I like Dixon's effort at the end. Just showed a lot of heart, and, and you know the guys. You know we, we never stopped playing, and it's just uh, it's been a roller coaster season so far. But uh, you know it's, it is what it is. Tyler Pace led the way offensively. He notched four goals and added an assist in the loss. Coach Malowski talked about Pace's play after the game. He knew that he wasn't able to be in Rochester, and it, I'm sure it just ate at him. And, you know, what, he do, what does he do is when he gets the first opportunity to help his teammates out, he gets two big ones and create a lot of space for guys. I thought that was his, his best game. Of the, you know, he played good in Vancouver too, but he, that was the best game of the year so far. And, you know, he's a big part of our offense, and, and he's very athletic. And sometimes we get a little slow on offense, and he brings that athleticism that gives us, uh, you know, the ability to have some deception, misdirection, and open it up for guys like Dix and other guys like that. So, um there's not much we can do at this point except kind of just watch the film and take the break that we have off and prepare for New York. Pace, who's been in and out of the lineup this season, brought his goal total up to eight with his performance, a performance he was proud of. You know, last game I played, I didn't get on the board, uh, maybe an assist, but, um, you know, you, we've got so many guys in this lineup that it's you got to perform to stay in, so um, I just wanted to go out there and do what I could to help the team, and I was fortunate enough to get a couple uh, past Hill there. Uh, unfortunately, it, it wasn't enough. It's been tough for the Roughnecks offense this year, being without captain Dane Doby since game one as he continues to serve a six-game suspension. And Pace says it's hard to fill the void of players like Doby and Jesse King, who's out with an upper body injury. I mean, with Doby out, obviously he's our captain. Um, and then Jesse Gorn out. Um, it's two big voids that need to be filled. Obviously, we've still got Curtis and Dutchie in the lineup, those, those veterans that I sort of lean on. Um, but I know that there's some younger guys in the lineup that are starting to look up to me as well. It really was a great start for the Roughnecks, who got outshot 64-45 in the game. 
but they fell apart in the third. Curtis Dixon gave his thoughts on Saturday's performance. Yeah, that's a perfect word for it. Frustrating. It's games were given away. You know, we're playing played pretty good first half there, and then just gave it away in the second half. We need to be better. It's tough to give up seven goals in a row and win a game. Tyler Pace tried to break down what just happened in that second half. I think we just jumped a little bit. Um, you know, they, they got a, a couple lucky bounces and kind of deflated us, stopped our momentum. Um, you know, a couple bounces our way, and the, the game's completely different. Their goalie played well in the second half, and, you know, it's tough, but we move on. 60-minute performances have eluded Calgary this season. Their first three losses were by a combined three goals, but in all three games, there had been a point where teams have gone on a run to pull ahead or get back into games. Saturday was no different, and Dixon says the loss falls on the team as a whole. Nobody, yeah, nobody was good enough tonight. It was, I mean, flat out. Like I said, you have to play a full 60 minutes in this league if you want to expect to win, and uh, right now we're not doing that. We had a, you know, a pretty solid first half there, came, came into the dressing room with a lead, and then we're just letting teams go on runs, and that's just as much the offense on the offense as the defense. We need to be able to stop those runs and stop the bleeding, and um, you know, we're letting them score three, four, five goals in a row, and it's just deflating for the whole team, so that's, that's something we need to figure out. Dixon finished with a hat trick, including one absolute beauty where he split two defenders and then fired a low scoop shot past Halifax goaltender Warren Hill. Dixon leads the team in points with 26 in six games this season. The loss once again drops the Roughnecks to 2-4 and four on the season. They sit in third in the division, one game back of Colorado and one and a half games back of Saskatoon. The Roughnecks will have yet another bye week to get things sorted out. They're not back in action until Saturday, February 8th, when they host the expansion New York Riptide at 7.30. The Riptide are just 1-7 this season. And... That will be the final game of Captain Dane Doby's six-game suspension. That's the Roughnecks Report. I'm Riley Pollock. Time to turn up the heat. These are three burning questions on the Steinberg Show. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Mr. Klein, I don't think we've done this uh, in quite some time. Let's, no, uh, let's do our three burning questions on a Monday afternoon. Yeah, as if it wasn't hot enough with Riley Pollock. Now we got three burning questions just bringing all the heat in here. Uh, all right. That he makes me hot. <laughs> I know he does. Uh, question number one. The All-Star game was this weekend. That brings about a lot of hand-wringing about how it's not the same as it was back in Person X's day or whatever. Um, could there be any changes to the All-Star game that would make it must-watch, or is it just kind of what it is at this point? I mean, for me, it is. they have gone through so many different iterations of the all-star game in my lifetime they went through the well they had the western conference and the eastern conference in Mm -hmm. my lifetime they had the um you know the the actual names of the conferences that weren't geographical um they had that for a little while they did north america versus the world uh they did the captain's picking thing like that that, there is that there's the the player draft and now they've done this three-on-three tournament that they do like at the very least, this one gave us a little excitement. We saw Leon Dreisaitl and Matthew Kachuk on the ice at the same time, combining for a goal, then both sheepishly smirking about it. Like, at least there was a little bit of entertainment there. The game was somewhat fun. Look, you're never going to make the All-Star game must-see for me. I watched about seven and a half minutes of it. That's the most I've watched 
in the last decade plus. I'm never going to watch it. I'm never going to be interested in it. I'm never going to be, hey, this is something that you have to see or this has any relevance on what happens. There's nothing to analyze. There's nothing to break down. And there's nothing that carries over into the rest of the season. But if I'm looking at it from abroad, this is the best they've got so far. So unless they're 100% sure they're going to improve on it, I wouldn't be rushing to change it. Uh, I certainly would not be one of those people dumping all over it either because I I think it's the best they've got. It's still not must-see for me, but I'm not really an all-star game guy, and, and I'm quite okay with that, and I'm quite certain I never will be. Yeah, I've, I've long accepted the All-Star game is not for me. When it's, I mean, you're much more in it than I am, but when you're paid to watch All-82 and it's kind of your job to watch it, you're not then going to watch a game that doesn't matter. Like, it's just, I'm not going to do that. Precisely. I spend too much of my time watching this thing anyway, so I, I don't need to be watching games that have no impact on, on anything whatsoever. But I think the three-on-three three is uh, a lot of fun. I think you need to go back to the captain's picks and broadcast that. That was a lot of fun, and um, heaven forbid we have some fun in this league. Um, question number two. Obviously a, a very emotional time in the, the basketball world, and it's led to a number of different ideas for tributes of Kobe Bryant. One mm-hmm. uh, suggestion was to, to change the logo, which hasn't been changed in a long time. Jerry West hasn't played for a very long time. Um, we, we've seen other leagues change their logos a bit during that time, I guess mainly just the NHL. Uh, the Dallas Mavericks are retiring number 24 for forever. Do you think that a player of Kobe's stature should have some form of a, a league-wide uh, everlasting tribute, I guess? Well, I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't bother me by any stretch of the imagination if they were to just do a league-wide retirement of number 24. I don't think that you could... I don't think you could be mad at that if they were to do so. If you were a player currently wearing that number in another organization, I don't think you can be mad about that. Um, look, they've they've retired jerseys across a league with that player still being with us. I mean, nobody... You're not allowed to wear 99 in the NHL, and, and I know that Wayne Gretzky is without question the greatest to ever play and holds every record that exists but 99 retired and they then retired his number league-wide so if they were to do that and and do a league-wide retirement of that number i wouldn't i wouldn't have a problem with it i think it'd be a fitting tribute this is a man who tragically lost his life he went way too early um and from a basketball standpoint he was one of the best of all time so if they were to do that i i would understand it yeah, I don't think you need to change the logo, but I, I like the uh, the number twenty four. I like the idea that at the All Star game, one team is going to wear all could. Uh, this isn't locked in, uh, but one team could wear all number eight, and the other team could wear all twenty four. Uh, kind of um, tribute to Kobe Bryant and the two numbers that he wore. Uh, last one for you. You and I were discussing this during the break. You did not see it, but uh, Canadian wrestler Edge made his return to the WWE. Last night at the Royal Rumble, lasting just pretty excited about this. I'm very excited about this. Uh, Lasting over 23 minutes in the Rumble after it was thought he would never be able to wrestle again for health reasons. Uh, Apparently he is cured. Where does Edge rank for you amongst Canadian wrestlers? Amongst Canadian wrestlers. That's a tough one because, you know, you've got Brett, you've got Owen. But boy, in terms of his in-ring work ethic and being a universe like if you're a wrestling fan, you you were totally bought it like you hated Edge and his character, 
and yet at the same time you loved him and knew how good he was. I thought, everybody talks about Triple H being one of the greatest heels of all time. And look, I'm coming at this from uh, I was a huge wrestling fan at one point in my life. I no longer am to the same degree or really to much of a degree at all. You are extremely huge into it. So please dispute me or uh, call me on things if you will. But many point to Triple H as being the greatest heel of all time. For me, I think I think Edge was a better heel than Triple H was. That guy was unbelievable in his role. His work rate is one of the greatest that I've ever seen. So I think he's got to rank up there with number two one top two top three of all time in that conversation is that mm-hmm. is that fair will you uh will you shame me for my analysis on this <laughs> no 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 not at all um i i wish you came on combat central one time and told g that triple h is one of the greatest heels of all time though that would have been a fun discussion for me uh but no i i think like am i right on that too he he's certainly he he is certainly up there. We don't need to get into the, the full lengths of that debate, but he, he is definitely up there. But I agree with you. I, I think that the range that Edge could play, whether it was the five-second poses for, uh, for the benefit of those with flash photography or mm-hmm. the um, ultimate opportunist into just being the, the world heavyweight champion and the heel that he played in that, I, I think because of the variety of characters that he was able to play and play effectively, I think it's Brett then I think it's Edge, then I think it's Jericho, and then it's, it's Owen for me for, uh, for ranking the, the Canadians. But I, I think, yeah, in the, the non-Bret Hart category, Edge is number one. Yep, I like that. I, I'd probably put him at number two behind Brett as well. Um, and, yeah, I, I wasn't even thinking about Jericho. I forgot that he's a Canadian and a Winnipeg boy, too, so forgot about that. Uh, I like that. That's a, a good three burning questions, my friend. How did I do, by the way? You haven't judged me in a while, so judge oh, right. me. Go three for three? Uh, yeah, we'll go three for three. The the one on Kobe, oh. uh, because of the, the complexity of his legacy, uh, that that's a, a tricky one. So we'll just give you that one. Uh, the Ulster one, I'll be honest, I don't even remember what you said, but yeah, we'll go with it. And uh, yeah, you got Edge pretty well. So yeah, we'll go three for three. There we go. Yes. Good start <laughs> to the week. Tune in every morning, 645, full disclosure with Will. It's brought to you by BMW Motorworks. You love your BMW. Give it the attention it deserves. Motorworks is BMW certified technicians and will beat any competitor's quotes on 51st Ave and 3rd Street Southeast or Google Motorworks Calgary. Pinder's back. I'm here for the first time in the calendar year 2020. Pinder and Steinberg is actually an accurate name of a program on this station. And that's next. Sportsnet 960, The Fan.